Hey, nurses. Welcome to the Nurse Dot Podcast, giving nurses validation, resources, and hope one episode at a time. Today on Nurse Dot Podcast. If you start incentivizing some of these things that could solve the underlying, the, the foundation here of what, healthcare systems, if you start finding a way to truly incentivize that, I think you will find the financial savings that could be had is massive, massive, but it takes some foresight. Joining us today, Dr. Will Sanderson, fresh from the front lines of healthcare in the United States. Will has recently made his way back home to Canada and is currently serving the community in Vancouver as a dedicated ER doctor. His unique perspective, shaped by extensive experience in two vastly different healthcare systems, brings us invaluable insights. As two clinicians with our fingers on the pulse of healthcare, we're here to have a heart-to-heart and diagnose the state of our healthcare systems. I'm your host, Kara Lunsford, registered nurse and VP of community at nurse.com. Dr. Will Sanderson, how are you? I'm so good. I want you, first and foremost, you have to introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what do you do, and then we'll kind of get into a little bit of how you see the world of medicine, your personal experience, and then you know we can talk about just other things that we think we know about. <laughs> But first and foremost, I really want you to introduce yourself. Tell our listeners who you are and what you do. So my name is Will Sanderson. I'm an emergency doc. I grew up in the wonderful city of Vancouver, BC, Canada. I moved to the States in my 20s after I met my wonderful wife, who's from Texas. I did my medical school down in Texas, and we kind of moved around the States for the last 15 years. I did my residency at the University of Wisconsin, my emergency medicine residency, which was wonderful. Madison is a a beautiful, beautiful city. And then did academics for a couple of years at the University of Kentucky, which was interesting. A lot of great people there. And then wanted to get back close to home. And so moved to Bellingham, Washington, which is right on the border of the US and Canada. So we could be close to where I grew up. And then this past year, I got my BC, my British Columbia medical license. And so we're in the process of moving back up to Vancouver. So really happy. It's all kind of come full circle and very, very fortunate. Well, I'm excited that you're here with me because a couple of things that I'm really passionate about talking about is, first of all, emergency room medicine. Mm -hmm. We know that there is a lot of nurses, doctors, healthcare workers that are leaving the profession. And for a variety of reasons. Some of that is definitely tied to moral injury, the ability to do the work that you signed up to do and to be able to do it safely, ethically, morally. And the more that nurses and doctors and just everyone in healthcare, healthcare workers in general, don't feel like they can do that work and that they can't do it in a way that meets with their own set of values and ethics, I think we're going to see even more people leaving. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you first, how do you feel your experience has been maybe pre-pandemic, 
post-pandemic of your experience within the healthcare system, specifically the, the ED? Yeah, it's a great question. So workers, nurses, docs, respiratory therapists, techs in the emergency department, we kind of get, we truly are the front line, 24-7, 365, anyone, anytime, anyplace, we're there. And that is already pre-pandemic kind of a, sometimes a tough place to be. We're in a resource-limited environment to start with, right? No matter whether or not you're in a uh, socialized medicine setting or whether you're in the States and and you've got a a private hospital, we're always going to be resource limited. They're going to want us to do work at the very limits of what we are able to do. And so that's a tough place to be to start, even before all of the issues with the pandemic came in. So boarding, for example, in the emergency department where we've got patients, we don't have beds in the hospital for patients that need to be admitted. That has been an issue for a while, but it was exacerbated by the pandemic. And what happens then is you've got people doing work that they're not trained to do. So you've got, as I'm sure you know, there are nurses that are specialized in emergency medicine. There are nurses who are more comfortable being on the floor. There are ICU nurses. There's there's just like within the physician space, there's specialization. The same thing happens in nursing. And so you've got emergency nurses doing floor nurse work that they're not comfortable with. They're overworked. They're understaffed. The ratios are off. And you've got people burning out in record times uh, down in the ED. And so even with unions trying to come in and, and protect nurses, they're still dealing with ratios that are unsustainable. And so Naturally, that's going to lead to just massive burnout, and we're going to lose some of our best people. And I, I don't blame some people for leaving. Yeah, for me, and and I haven't been quote unquote at the bedside. I've done home health, hospice. I still do some of that. I did it yesterday. I went and saw a patient yesterday, but I'm not in that acute care setting anymore. But I have lots of friends that are. And how are they doing? So the struggles that you have. Yeah, really struggling. But to what you just said about the safety, being able to provide safe patient care is number one because nobody wants to walk in and do crummy care. Oh, nobody wants to walk into work, right? And wonder if today's the day that they're going to be stretched too thin, they're going to make a mistake and someone's going to die, get sick, something bad's going to happen. That level of stress is not sustainable. No one can keep going back into work feeling like it's a bad game of Russian roulette. Yeah, what's one of the things that leads to job satisfaction in any profession is feeling like you're good at what you do and you do it in an environment that's supportive, right? That's what all of us want to do. We want to be good at what we do and we want to feel supported. We're getting the opposite right now, right? We don't feel like we're doing necessarily a great job because we're being asked to do things that we're not trained to do. That goes for both nurses and physicians, right? When there's a a boarded patient sitting in the emergency department for an extended period of time that's not that normally would be on the floor, that normally would have floor nurses taking care of them, normally would have a hospitalist or an internist taking care of them, they're still physically, they're sitting five feet that way. And I can't just ignore that they're there. Yes, they might be on somebody else's service, but if they're still down with me, it kind of falls to me and it falls to my nurse who I've got with two other patients. Well, now she's tied up doing things that she's not comfortable with with this patient. And so inevitably, 
if you don't feel like you're doing a good job or you don't feel like you're doing something that you're good at, it just wears you. It's just like you're, the, the river keeps rubbing on the, the, you know, the side of the beach there or whatever it's called, the, the mountain. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're talking about it's getting what you're eroding. Right. So yeah, if you didn't know, I, I provide visual helpers, aids, some would say. <laughs> and here's here's my water. Going over your rock. You see that? Yes. It looks lovely. I know. Yeah. They look lovely. They're very buffed. Buffed is what I would say. Through the erosion process. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> I'm I'm well eroded. You're well eroded. Yes. And that's not that's not to complain. It's just the way things are. And and I think from a physician per, uh, perspective, from a doc perspective, at least an ER doc perspective, one of the great things about emergency medicine is the camaraderie within your team. More than maybe any other area of medicine, the emergency medicine team is super tight-knit. And so if my techs, if my nurses, if the other members of my team are under stress and not at their best. It hurts me and it hurts patients, both directly and indirectly. Yeah. It's just too much. And, you know, everybody right now, I don't know of a doc, I won't name names, but I don't know of very many docs. Let me be more specific. I don't know of very many docs within emergency medicine that have been doing it for about 10 to 15 years, which is where I am, who haven't thought of an exit strategy in some regard, right? Mm -hmm. Which is insane because we've, we've spent most of us over 10 years, 10 to 10 to 10 plus years, including undergrad med school and residency training to do this. And then 10 years in, you're already looking for a way out. Something's not right. Something's not right. And so when you say that of the docs that you know, most of those people are here in the US or some are also most of the docs I know are in the States. So I can't really speak to the Canadian emergency physician perspective. My suspicion, and this may be a bias, but my suspicion is that, that the same type of things are present, but maybe not to the same degree. Fair. I think that's fair. Okay. I know that you haven't had as much experience in Canadian healthcare as you've had in the US as a physician. Yeah. But would it be fair to say that you have been a patient? of Canadian healthcare. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I was here till I was 23, 24, so definitely, yeah. Okay. So not to say that things don't change, but let's just be honest, things in healthcare slow to change. Yeah. <laughs> Let, we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. In your experience, even just going into an emergency room as a patient in Canada and in the US, what are the things that you feel are pretty similar and the things that you feel are pretty different? That's a great question. So and I think this is a common misperception from some people in the States is that wait times are crazy long for everything. And that's just not true. If you have a STEMI in Canada, you go to the cath lab in the same amount of time that you would if you were in the States. Tell people what a STEMI is. For anybody who doesn't know what a STEMI is, tell them what a STEMI is. Because some people might be like not nurses listening. Yes, that was presumptuous. No, it's okay. A STEMI is what's called an ST elevation myocardial infarction. It's a heart attack. Okay. So you're having a big heart attack and you come in, there's different types of heart attacks, but the big ones are what we call STEMIs. And you come in, you say, ah, I'm having this chest pain. We get an ECG and it shows a certain pattern that says, uh-oh, one of the blood vessels are blocked uh, that are feeding the muscles of your heart. 
And we need to open that blood vessel really quickly. Otherwise, your heart's going to die or that part of your heart's going to die. And so we need to get in there quick. And so when that's recognized in Canada, you go to the cath lab where they unblock it quickly. When that's recognized in the States, you go to the cath lab to to unblock it quickly. I think I don't have numbers in front of me, but they're going to be very similar, right? So for emergent conditions, I think you're going to get very similar care. Do you feel like the triage is the same, right? Like, so you come in, you say, I have chest pain or I'm having some sort of symptom and then they prioritize you. Correct. So triage really becomes, and again, this is somewhat of an uneducated position on this, but I I have seen it to some extent. And that is that the triage system truly becomes a triage system. If you have a sprained ankle and there are a whole bunch of people with chest pain ahead of you, you are going to have to wait a long time. And that is a big difference, right? So if you go to Vancouver General Hospital on a Monday night and you have a a sore ankle after you you turned it and it's a busy night, you're going to wait probably a really long time. You're going to wait longer, I think, than you would in the States. What do you think the reason is for that? Well, I think the the feeling is that they're under-resourced as well and things that can wait will wait. Whereas, you know, know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here. It's okay. We can totally hypothesize about a lot of this stuff because I think that we don't all know the answers, right? Like, so some of it is just that we have theories. I know we love to have everything based in data and we like to be pretty sure, right? But in this situation, I think what we're trying to tease out here is between you, a physician, and me, a nurse. Yeah. Can we try to diagnose this problem? But we don't necessarily have all the answers. We have some knowns and then we have a bunch of unknowns. (laughs) And we're going to be really clear about the unknowns that we have in the process of, of trying to diagnose this problem because I think that you're making really good points. And I think like this is how we start to peel back an onion. This is how we start to get to solutions and ideas around what could we do to make an impact. Yeah. I think one of the things that would make a big impact on both sides of the border, and I think something they do really well in Australia and New Zealand, is improve primary care. That's a big one. Is improve primary care, improve access to primary care, not just for uh, prevention of illness, but for appropriate self-triage of certain things, right? Maybe that's one of the reasons. As bad as primary care is in the States, my suspicion and my bias is that it's even tougher up here to get a primary care doc. And so I think there are a lot of people that come to the emergency department in Canada for primary care type things. They don't have their, they ran out of their diabetes medication. They ran out of their high blood pressure medication. They're wondering where they're supposed to go next for something simple, like they had blood in their stool and they were told they were supposed to follow up with somebody at some point to make sure they got a colonoscopy. Well, I don't know where to do that if I don't have somebody that's going to refer me in the right direction. And so I I guess I'll just go to the hospital, right? And so I think there's some of that there. So like education, access, just a really good way of helping people to understand and coordinate their own care uh, in a way that is accessible to people no matter what level of education they have, what language they speak, because those are barriers, right? Those are barriers right away that if we don't make this more seamless for people. Hey there, nurses and nursing students. 
We know your job isn't just a profession. It's a calling. Now, with Nurse.com, your nurse life is all in one place. Imagine a world where career opportunities are tailored to your skills, where you can find peer support in the Nurse.com app, the only networking site built specifically for nurses. Continuing education, events, peer support, and jobs? What more can you ask for? Ready to take the leap into a role that is truly yours? Check out nurse.com forward slash jobs today. Well, and, and having that central point of contact, having that primary care provider that can do that, that can translate, that can improve health literacy is, oh, I mean, that, that is one of the biggest inefficiencies in any system, right? Is that if you have those people there, the downstream effects are mitigated big time. The more we can incentivize, no matter where we are, improved access to high quality primary care, a lot of the downstream things that we are complaining about are going to be mitigated. Not necessarily solved, but mitigated for sure. So really the reimbursement, because we, we know, okay, like, right, follow, you got to follow the money. And follow the money. I don't know necessarily how this applies in Canada, but here it's corporate healthcare. So yeah. we prioritize things that are reimbursed procedures. And so if we prioritize primary care and the reimbursement is there, then start to go there. it'll start to go there because the primary doctors will want to do that work. They'll want to do we have to make sure that we're we're prioritizing the right things and that we're reimbursing the right things. Because right now what they're doing is they rely, at least on the physician side, they rely on the the medical, because this is this goes back to medical school, right? Because you choose what type of medicine you're going to practice while you're in medical school, right? So you get access to all of these things in medical school while you're training to become a doctor. You get some exposure to a number of different specialties, not all of them. And then you choose sometime in your medical school is four years. So you choose sometime, people start thinking in their third year and choose in their fourth year what type of medicine they want to specialize in. Is that the same if you're in Canada? Like if you're in Canada and you go to school, is it's pretty similar? Yeah, it's four years. Yep. And you have to pick your specialty during that time. Yep. You start to get an idea in third year and then usually you pick by fourth year. So you can do your away rotations to audition for a residency program. And a residency, for those that don't know, is that after medical school, you go to medical school, you become a doctor, and then you spend anywhere from three to seven or eight years training in a specialty like emergency medicine or orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery or ear, nose, and throat or primary care, right? Uh, to be a family physician, an internal medicine physician. And so the medical students know what those positions get paid. And when you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, and you know that one of them is at the very low end of the pay scale, and some of them are at the very high end of the pay scale, you need to follow the money, Kara. You need to follow the money. You can't always just appeal to their sense of... Altruism? altruism and goodwill. Like you can't do that, but that's what they try to do. They try to tell medical students, you know, do the right thing, go into primary care. Then you should relieve my student loans. <laughs> then you should really, yeah. To be fair, there are some programs that the government puts out to try to help relieve the student loans and everything else. 
but you know you're going to end up making over the course of your career a fraction of what you would make with one of these other specialties, which is why, and again, th- there are definitely exceptions here, okay? But the higher paid the specialty, the higher in the medical school class rank you'll get, right? So the better grades you get in medical school, is there's a strong correlation between those groups and the ones that have the higher paid specialties. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And so if you start incentivizing some of these things that could solve the underlying, the foundation here of healthcare systems, if you start finding a way to truly incentivize that, I think you will find some of these problems five, 10, 15 years down the road will begin to be mitigated. Because what I hear you saying is that if some of these really smart people in medical school turned that intelligence towards primary care because primary care is what pays... And so they take all of that amazing intelligence and they bring it into primary care. Imagine the ripple effect. There's no doubt. And I mean, in primary care and internal medicine, these are very broad specialties that need really bright people doing them effectively. And you're absolutely right. If we could find a way to incentivize that appropriately, I think we need to not rely, like to your point, we need to not just rely on medical students' sense of altruism. They chose to go to medical school, just like nurses choose to nurse. You'd you'd like to think because they like to take care of patients and they're doing it for the right reasons, right? So we've already kind of established that to to some degree, but you can't keep taking advantage of them. And I feel like there is some of that. And there's some push to like, ah, come on, you know, do the right thing. Pick the right specialty. Well, it's your calling. It's your calling. It's your calling, right? Like if you were a nun or a priest or something like that, it's, this is what they equate people in healthcare to is literally jobs that don't have any kind of compensation. (laughs) And on top of that, I will say, that what people don't take into consideration is the enormous amount of personal risk that people are taking in these professions, exposure to pathogens, exposure to violence, exposure to workplace injury. And you have to consider those things when you are considering someone's compensation. I can't imagine that a police officer or a firefighter or anyone who has a potential going into danger, Mm -hmm. that that is somehow their risk is not evaluated when they are considering compensation. You're absolutely right. I think on top of that, even if you just want to be, you know, pessimistic about this or, or, I don't know, you might say realistic, but the financial burden on the system, if we start thinking long-term, and so if we if we stop thinking two or three years in the future and we start thinking 15 to 20 years in the future, the, the efficiency gains, the financial savings that could be had by incentivizing this on the front end is massive, massive, but it takes some foresight. And when you're dealing with something so politically charged where the incentive on the political side is getting reelected, and not necessarily on the longer term gains, it's hard to make those changes. Yeah. Reform is difficult when there are lobbyists that are lobbying for a personal, something that's kind of a a personal incentive. Sure. Or kind of a, I guess not personal, but more of like a myopic incentive in a way 
because these lobbies are focused on their one thing. Yes. Right. And the, the success of that one thing and whether that is, you know, hospital associations, their, their interest is in the success of hospitals from a fiscal perspective. Right. I'm not saying that they're not interested in patient safety outcomes, et cetera. No, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that one of those things that they are interested in is the profitability. Sure. Now that's here. Yeah, that's here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's okay. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, right? But who is looking out for the longer, who's the lobby for patients, right? Who Who's the lobby for healthcare professionals too? You have the nurse lobby, you have, you kind of have a physician lobby, but it's it's really you kind of don't. Um, we won't go down that rabbit hole. But who is who is advocating in Washington for patients first, right? I don't think that group, if they if there is a lobby, and again I don't know, but if there is a lobby, for some reason I don't think they're the most well funded lobby, right? So who's looking out for those people? And and I guess that's where you start to think about: is that your government? I don't know. Maybe it is, right? Yeah, so I think that this is where there's this really distinct difference between a more socialized healthcare system and a more corporate healthcare system, which people would call for-profit, non-profit, but those are all still very corporate healthcare. So do you feel personally, as a citizen of of Canada, Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's more of a prioritization of you as a citizen? you as a person? Uh, from a healthcare perspective? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think most Canadians are pretty, if you ask Canadians, I'm sure there's polls out there. If you ask Canadians if they're happy with their healthcare, I think most would say yes. There are definite downsides, long wait times for elective procedures, right? So my dad needed his knee replaced. He's getting his other knee replaced. I'm sure he would have liked to have had it done as soon as he needed it right away. But they said, well, you know, it'll be... 12 months, it'll be 18 months or whatever it's going to be. And I think his, his perspective is like, all right, well, it is what it is, right? I mean, this is not an emergent thing. It can wait. And so I'm going to wait, but it's the price I pay to have free healthcare, essentially free. It's right. not free, but to me, it's free. And I would argue fairly equitable healthcare, right? And there are still social determinants of health that affect and cause disparities in Canada, but not to the same extent that they do in the States. I, I think we can all agree on that, that the, the yeah. gap between certain socioeconomic groups and racial groups is at a bigger, the gap is bigger in the States. The chasm is a bit larger. Yes, the, that the river runs through the chasm and it's just buffing it all right here like this. <laughs> this is my chasm. I don't like doing this. If, if I do this, it looks like my head is a rock. In the chasm. In the chasm. I don't like using my head as a rock. It's too round. Although it is bald, and so therefore it. I actually, I actually used to have hair, but but healthcare has caused all the rough has caused all of my head to become bald because it's it's eroded, polished, full circle, baby. Full circle. We've come all the way back to the polishing and the erosion. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. This is erosion. This is erosion at its best. So uh, where were we? It was something really profound and important. <laughs> It was really that I think we're talking about 
you were saying that there's definitely inequities. It doesn't matter if you're in Canada, if you're here, there's inequities, but there are larger sometimes inequities and and gaps, especially in certain socioeconomic or different ethnicity, all of that might be experiencing a a bigger. I I think that's fair. So it gets back to, well, who's looking out for the patients and you know, as a Canadian, I, I remember growing up, I could just tell you how, how I felt growing up. I always felt we were proud of our Canadian healthcare. It was one of the things that was, was Canadian was that everybody got access to healthcare. It was hockey and maple syrup and Wayne Gretzky and healthcare. Like that's what we had. Like, and now it's Michael Bublé. Um, but really, uh, those are the things that we're most proud of in Canada are those five things, at least in Vancouver. The rest of Canada doesn't like them. But really, it was something that I was proud of growing up. I'm still proud of. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come home. I wanted to be a part of the system. And I know that I'm trading one set of problems for another. But for me, it's I feel better about it. I feel really good about it. So what do you think? I was going to ask you. I know you say like you're trading one set of problems for another. Okay, let's say you're you're coming into now the Canadian healthcare system. You have all of this experience coming from here. If you were to create the perfect utopian healthcare system, what do you think perfect world? Because I'm going to go back for a second and I'm going to talk about something you said, which was your dad needed a knee replacement and they were going to take a year. Now, the nurse in me says... Fair. Okay. I get it. You got to prioritize it. It's going to take longer. But then what I do is I go, what are the results of being sedentary? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Right? So how are you actually causing more problems? It could be obesity. It could be high blood pressure. It could be a lot of things that just being active lead into preventative medicine and keep you out of the hospital in heart disease and all kinds of things? And how does being less active for an entire year at an older age, how does that affect you? Right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think it's a, it's a great point and one that I hadn't really thought of before. And You're welcome. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it, but I, if you think about it, in his particular case, he was still able to walk. And so what he did is he walked. He took responsibility for himself to some extent, and he, he would walk. He couldn't run or it hurt too much to run. Now, if he was truly immobile, I wonder if that would have bumped him up. I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if it would have. And maybe you're right. Maybe that could lead to poor outcomes on mass, having those kinds of delays. So I think in the perfect system, you've got, well, there is no perfect system. But if you were going to come up with a perfect system, it would be probably some sort, this is so politically charged, it would probably be some sort of hybrid system that was socialized medicine, but with access to private, you know, uh, private insurance or, or some kind of way to ease the burden on the system by allowing people that want to pay a way to get it done sooner. Now, here's the argument against that. The argument against that 
is twofold. One is it creates more inequality, right? And so you're having a bigger gap between the haves and the haves nots. The other part of that is that there, as of right now, there are a finite number of docs and nurses to go around within this system. And if you pull them out into the private system, you're not adding more positions for this private part. All you're doing is taking from the, the public part and taking those providers and moving them into the private part. And so then you're left with staff shortages in the public system. So those are the arguments against. Having said that, I think given that there is no perfect system, probably the utopian system is somewhat of a hybrid with everybody, truly everybody, getting access to low-cost, high-quality healthcare, primarily in, the, in a primary care setting, putting a lot of money towards primary care and prevention, and then having a private option for those that want expedited care. I think that's probably the closest to a utopian that I can come up with. And probably more utilization of things like telehealth. Yeah, for sure. I think we have not done a great job of utilizing technology to help us bring more healthcare to more people on a regular basis. I have a great, I have a great example for you on this, yeah. which is, let's say an emergency doc gets paid 10 bucks an hour. Let's say that's what it is, okay? I do not, or at least I'd say half of the docs I know would be willing to get paid half of that, five bucks an hour, to be able to sit and do telehealth triage or do the first, after a nurse triage with somebody in the emergency department, they see a physician via telehealth on a little monitor on an iPad on a stick, and I can do most of what needs to be done or at least get the process started to, to make it more efficient. I could do that from my office. I could do that sitting here. And there is a movement towards that. Now, we still need docs in the emergency department. There's things I won't be able to do remotely, but there is a lot that I can do starting from a remote position. And I know that at my old hospital, they had been talking about adding a, a telehealth shift, essentially. And you wouldn't have to pay as much because you're sitting at home, but docs would be like, that's great. I can just sit around. I get, a, I get a little break in between. I'm in my own house. I'm sitting in my chair, you know. It's a good trade-off. It's a good trade-off. And I know that even here in Canada, they're looking at doing that at one of the sites now. And, and again, you'll probably get paid less for that shift, but docs are willing to do it. It's called longevity. It's called wellness for the position. And you raise such a great point is that we need to do a better job of using technology to make things better. And obviously, when I think about this in my head, I, I kind of I have this like triangle, I think, in my head where there's just this foundation that you're operating off of. That the foundation really is to provide good, accessible primary care, preventative care to everyone, right? And it's like, how are we going to do that? What do you think we need to do to provide that foundation? What do you think needs to be done? So I think that we need to see more PAs, nurse practitioners, standing up clinics. I think we need to see more of that because we have so many nurses that have moved into, we're seeing this huge jump in nurses that are going back to school to become nurse practitioners. I think that nurse practitioners need to have more autonomy. I think PAs need to have more autonomy around basic primary care. I don't think that you really need to have the level of oversight from a physician on basic primary care. And that if we had more of those brick and mortar clinics all over where 
people just knew they could walk into that clinic just the same as like what you said about emergency rooms. People walk in because that's the place to go. They know that if they walk in there, there's someone on the other side of that desk who can help them. And as long as we start to utilize our workforce to the best of their ability to their skill level Mm -hmm. and create more access and say, this is, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone has access to this kind of care, Yeah, no matter who you are. And then I think moving on from there to what you said earlier about, yes, sometimes you have to have those other options. Maybe people want to pay out of pocket for, you know, for private care. Maybe they want to pay out of pocket for a certain level of insurance that helps them navigate the system a little bit differently above and beyond primary care. So they need a, they need a surgery, they need a specialist, they need this, they need that. But I do think that we have to start somewhere. And I think the start is providing that that so if you're a nurse who's worked for a while and has made the decision to become a nurse practitioner and again maybe you can educate me on this but my understanding is that they can kind of choose to go whichever direction they want to go to right in terms of specialties so in an emergency department we have nurse practitioners we have pas i know that on surgical services they do as well maybe with a little bit less autonomy but but they do so what's going to push a nurse practitioner or a PA to choose primary care over one of these other things? I think autonomy. I think a 100% autonomy is what will drive them into it. Right now, I think it's only about 26 states, and I could be wrong about that, but I think it's about 26 states where there are, that nurse practitioners have the ability to have some level of autonomy. Mm-hmm. That really makes a huge difference for them. Because if you think about it, if you're there, if you're in a clinic and now everything you do has to run past the desk of a physician who's not there, who did not see the patient, that is not involved in, but they're yes, no, yes, no, questioning this and that. At the end of the day, come on, this is primary care. This is this is some basic stuff here, right? Sure. It's not anything that a nurse practitioner or a PA shouldn't be able to do. But then you'd you'd need to make a distinction, right? You'd need to make a distinction and say, if you're doing primary care, if you're doing these clinics, then you have autonomy. Because I don't think you can necessarily say across the board, you have autonomy in whatever specialty you want, right? No, no, no. It would be primary care. Primary care, you have autonomy. But there are some that want more autonomy across the board, right? And so you'd have to, within the group, there needs to be some unified front in a way. Right. Because I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I think if it came across as autonomy in any specialty, no matter what, I think you would get more resistance. Oh, for sure. You'd get more resistance. And and I really don't think that that's the case. I think that if you want to drive more nurse practitioners into primary care, the way to drive them is through autonomy. Autonomy within, within that. Within that. Yeah. yeah. Within that area. And then I think you would see you know, if we were then through government helping to fund 
those nurse practitioners who want to stand up a clinic in an area that does not have a lot of access to healthcare. Maybe that gets more government funding. Maybe that, you know, gets some support in some way. If you choose as a nurse practitioner, maybe you get some loan forgiveness or something like that because you're deciding to go and stand up a clinic in an area that doesn't have access. I think that there's like so many things that we could absolutely be doing. I love your idea. I think that's such a great idea. How do you feel about, this has been a hot button issue. So within medical schools, we have, what is it, AAMC, I think, that has standards for who gets a medical degree in the United States, right? And that you have to meet certain standards. From the outsider's perspective, I hear chatter amongst physicians about diploma mills, online diploma mills for nurse practitioners. Is that real? Is it something that, is it a... um, Boy, that's an opening for, we could do a whole, we could do a whole podcast just about the for-profit, private, university type of thing, going from having your BSN to having your NP and how much... Give me your 30-second... My 30-second pitch... I want to hear, see how you feel about it. I want to hear if it bothers you or if you're like, no, more access is better. Or like, how do you, where do you fall on that? I think that this is the reason why it's really important to have a very strong licensure test. So if you're going to get your RN, if you're going to get your NP, if you go to a university that is maybe not providing the best education and really could be potentially a disservice to the public, there is a safe, here's the safety, right? The safety is you still have to take the same test that everyone else has to take. Is that not the case right now? No, it is. It is. It is. So that's why I'm not overly concerned because I do feel like the test, the ne- the NCLEX and the next gen, which is the, the updated NCLEX, I think is... Appropriately rigorous? It's appropriately rigorous, yeah. And so my caution to anybody going into a program that isn't preparing you adequately is that you might be stuck with a shit ton of student loan debt and no license. And so I don't recommend that. Choose carefully. Uh, Choose carefully, be diligent about the school that you're choosing to go to, and don't just look at pass rates because sometimes what happens is, is that you may not even make it through graduation because they've weeded you out. And now the ones that are actually going to take the test are the ones that are passing, but they've collected a fair amount of tuition from you in the meantime. Right. You know, you've spent a year or two or something in school and then you don't pass school so that their pass rate is really good. I think maybe I've done a little bit of these episodes, which I have a little bit more knowledge about the system, if you will. But I do think that it's not a major concern because I think the people that are getting out there and actually have their license to practice, that they've had to go through the proper vetting. That's great. That's good to hear. That's helpful. So I'm glad that we've solved all the world's problems. Um, I could, we could talk forever. Now I see why you're such a good podcast host. Thank you. I think that all the answers are out there. It's about getting curious. It's about sitting here, having a conversation, trying to diagnose a problem. Someone's going to listen to this podcast and someone's going to go, I'm going to run with that. 
I'm going to run with that. And maybe someone out there is going to listen to this and say, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to fix the system. And so really, it's just our job to plant the seeds. Yeah. No, I think you're doing such a great job doing that too. I like the idea of an interdisciplinary discussion too, right? We have so much we can learn from each other. I leave you honest from the emergency department. The one thing that I think we do really well is we truly are, and not to sound Pollyanna about it, but we truly are a well-running emergency department. It truly is team-centered. Everybody knows the roles and everybody respects all of the members of the team and we listen to each other. And Because you don't have time not to. And I think that that's probably what you you have learned organically. For sure. And some of my most gratifying moments as a physician have come from interacting with the members of my team. And that's not just me. Pretty much every emergency doc you, you speak with would say that one of the best parts of their job is getting to interact with their nurses, getting to know their nurses, and being a part of that team together. And it's great. That, that's one part of the job. When, when we talk about it, it makes me think, eh, I still have a good 15, 20 years in me for sure. I love that. I just realized that the title of this is going to be called Diagnosing Healthcare. Oh, that's perfect. Sometimes I don't have a title until it's done. <laughs> until it just... It just happens and it weaves and it becomes and unfolds. And then you're like, that's it. And that's what our episode's about. We're diagnosing healthcare. I love it. Well, you were a wonderful guest. Wow. That's very really? kind of you. I beg to differ. And I apologize in advance for all of my inaccuracies. Nope. You are not inaccurate. But it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you and keep fighting the good fight. I love listening to your podcast and uh, I'm very, very proud to call you a friend. Thank you so much, Will. Until next time, my friend. If you are a nurse or nursing student who enjoyed this episode, don't forget to join us on the nurse.com app where you can find the nurse.discussion group, a place where we dissect each episode in detail and delve deeper into today's topics. Nurse Dot is a Nurse.com original podcast series. Production, music, and sound editing by Don Lunsford. Production coordination by Rhea Wade. Additional editing by John Wells. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in to the Nurse Dot podcast. Until next time, keep spreading the love and the care.